0: Pakistan's problem is really one of implementation rather than one of designing, uh, rather than one of design.
1: Hello and welcome to Pakistonomy. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Khaled Ikram about Korea's economic miracle and what Pakistan can learn from Korea's success story. Dr. Ikram holds a PhD in economics from Harvard University and worked in the Pakistan Planning Commission and for the World Bank where he focused on economic development programs for countries such as South Korea, Egypt, and Vietnam. He is an expert on the Korean economy and I could not have thought of anyone better to talk to me about Korea's economic miracle. This contribution to Korea's economic development was recognized by the Korean government, which awarded Dr. Ikram the Korean President's Medal for Services to Korean Development. I hope you enjoyed this discussion and thank you for tuning in. Khalid Ikram welcome to Pakistanami. Thank you very much, Uzair. It's such a pleasure to be here. So, you Pakistanis have this fascination with Korea and what Korea has achieved in its economic miracle uh, going back from the 50s onwards. And you are someone who was deeply involved with what the Koreans have achieved. Um, and we just wanted to start off, like, tell our listeners about what you think were the keys to success for Korea. Where did Korea come from and ended up and... Is there something for Pakistan to learn from the Korean miracle? Well, uh, have you got 14
0: hours for this interview? <laughs> <laughs> T- take that much. We even scratch the surface. <laughs> but uh, don't worry. <laughs> I'm not going to launch into anything like that. Let me just uh, put the Korean achievement in some sort of perspective, with a very brief perspective, by running through four or five key uh, economic indicators in 1960 korea was worse off than pakistan its per capita income was if anything just a shade lower than pakistan's it was about pakistan was about 130 140 and korea's was around 120 and by pakistan i'm talking about uh, west pakistan i mean the present pakistan by 2017 korea's per capita income was 33000 dollars Pakistan's was one thousand three hundred. Wow! I mean, that's uh, take a look at the main uh, propeller uh, uh, of the Korean ex of the Korean uh, growth exports. In nineteen sixty, Korean exports were fifty million dollars, and consisted basically of uh, human hair wigs, soft toys, and you know kimchi, you know fermented cabbage, and stuff like that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Pakistan's exports at that point were 220 million dollars in 2017 Korean exports were 600 billion Pakistan's were 30 billion so starting from a level of one-fourth of Pakistan's exports in 1960 Korea's exports now are more than 20 times Pakistan's exports so, uh, that's amazing yeah the korean gdp growth uh, from i'm just taking 1960 to 2017 because i could find those figures most easily uh, averaged 8.3 percent a year in real terms uh, that's corrected for prices of course pakistan's was 5.2 the difference i mean it looks like oh well you know it's three percentage points but the power of compound interest is mm-hmm. that a, a dollar invested in uh, 1960 at, uh, you know, one dollar invested at 8.3 percent would in 50 years become $54. While a dollar invested in uh, uh, in 1960 at 5.2 percent would become $12.5. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you see the… what even a three percentage point difference in the growth rate over this period of time has done to Korea's GDP. Now, the Korean growth, I mean, to sort of first, let's just have a very much of a bird's eye view of it. Uh, Growth is essentially driven by two things. One is your investment rate. And the second is the efficiency with which you use this investment, uh, with which you use the inputs. I mean, what economists call total factor productivity. But Mm -hmm. it just means that the efficiency with which uh, inputs are combined in use. Korea's investment rate over this period of 1960 to 2017 averaged 35% of GDP. Pakistan's was 15%. Mm -hmm. Now. Korea actually paid for most of this uh, investment through its own savings. Its savings rate was about 31-32%. Pakistan's savings rate over this period was about 10%. At times, it's even dropped as low as 8% of GDP. Uh, Korea's productivity uh, accounted for about 30% of the GDP growth. Pakistan's productivity accounted for about 16 or 17% the rest was using more factors more labor more capital mm-hmm. rather than using them uh, efficiently i mean in fact somebody said at one point that pakistan's growth was due to perspiration not inspiration mm-hmm. you know that that's a very say, good uh, point yeah that's uh, something up. uh now what were the Uh, What are the main factors behind this growth? And these are actually political economy factors, as you would expect, I mean, rather than just purely uh, political, uh, purely economic. The most important factor was the degree of the government's commitment to economic development. And uh, in essence, it was as follows. Up to about 1961, 1962, Korea had the standard import substitution uh, strategy and crony capitalism. I mean, if you're connected to the government, you got lollipops. If you were not connected mm-hmm. to the government, well, you could go, you know, do whatever you liked. In 1961, uh, a military uh, commander, uh, Park Jung-hee, uh, seized power. And for the first year or so, first year or two, in fact, he followed the standard uh, import substitution and crony capitalism kind of uh, development, if you call it development. Mm-hmm. But then, very fortunately for Korea, he came under the influence of uh, a group of economic advisors who put the following argument to him. They said to him, uh, Mr. President, your principal responsibility is to the security of Korea. From uh, again threats from North Korea and China. So far the Americans have been supporting us, but we cannot plan to rely indefinitely on their support. They've already begun talking of withdrawing the bulk of their troops. This means that we have to build up our own armed forces to rely for our security. But they added that modern armed forces are not just about numbers. They must be equipped with up-to-date technology. Mm-hmm. But uh, Korea does not have this technology. We have to import it. This means we must have the foreign exchange to pay for the imports. And the only way we can pay for, this, uh, for these imports uh, is by exporting. So they, they then uh, close the circle by saying that if we are to ensure Korea security, we must export. If Korea Hmm. is to exist as an independent country, it depends on exporting. So Park Chung, he took this uh, reasoning to heart and began this export drive in earnest from about 1963. That's really when the Korean uh, export drive began. Now, another instance of this uh, government's commitment to uh, uh, exporting and to development was that the president himself chaired monthly meetings of the exporters. And uh, they discussed export targets. And each firm was given these, uh, each major firm was given uh, export targets. And then every month, these were reviewed with the president chairing the meeting. Mm -hmm. And... uh, firms were asked to explain why they had not why they had fallen short why they had not achieved these targets uh, was it because i mean you know tax man was bothering them or was it because they didn't couldn't find spare capacity uh, for shipping or or they didn't know anything about the markets or what yeah and the president then would give orders at that meeting to solve these problems but and this would go on for some months but i mean if the government did not uh, if sorry, if the firms did not uh, continually meet these targets, then something very nasty happened to them.
1: Because uh, <laughs> it were, was a dictatorship after all, right? It, it was a dictatorship after all.
0: But uh, uh, what he did was that uh, you, they were made to sell part of their conglomerate, part of their you know larger company, to somebody who was exporting, and since the exporter the successful exporter was the only one who was allowed to bid uh, he could name his price mm-hmm. uh, the one of the presidents of uh, uh, it was Debu heavy industry who was telling me this story i mean he'd been in these meetings he said dr ikram after a couple of such examples we would export our grandmothers to meet our targets. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I, I
1: mean,
0: you know, so the, they were pretty serious uh,
1: about this. So it they, was essentially, at the, sorry to interrupt, but no, no, you know, at this point in time, it was a dictatorship, a dictator who bought into a vision for the future, primarily guided by an uh, idea of what national security meant and how to achieve it. Um, but essentially, still a dictatorship. Yeah. Uh, but right. really, wielded a stick in a way uh, on corporations and firms that were still in very early stages of becoming globally competitive to force them yeah. to become competitive. And this Dar- like you know very cutthroat Darwinian sense of what can and cannot happen because the president was saying, "I will give you everything you need to grow, but then you better grow. If you don't." I will sell your company for pennies on the dollar to the best bidder on the table who is achieving their targets. Um, and that's just how the system is going to be run uh, in Korea, at least at this point in time.
0: Yeah, precisely. And you see, what he did was uh, that he uh, gave these people the money, but also forced them to uh, have uh, you know, factories and so on that were much larger than uh, Korea required. So in a sense, that if they were to survive, they had to export. He forced them into the international market, uh, but made them have large factories and large companies so that they could benefit from economies of scale. And uh, if you talk about what was the basic strategy behind the Korean miracle, uh, it's very simple. Uh, You begin with the knowledge that only about 25% of Korea's land area is usable the rest is rock and forest mm-hmm. so so you know agriculture as a driver of growth is out so it's you can't a, perspire
1: to your uh, earlier uh, point yeah, there, yeah. But, there are there's a limit to perspiration in this case uh, there's
0: a limit to perspiration and the perspiration that you're going to do had better come from industry better mm-hmm. come from manufacturing uh, but uh, so basically what they did was that they their strategy was a import raw materials and uh, semi-finished goods because korea has no mineral resources Hmm. there's you know there's no oil or coal or whatever it is to depend on anyway so they imported this stuff they added value to it by a technically trained labor force and they exported it at a competitive exchange rate that's it that is the Korean miracle. In fact, that is the East Asian miracle. The Taiwan miracle is the same. Hmm. Singapore, Hong Kong, etc. I mean, is exactly the same strategy. The When I look at Pakistan's economic policies, I am amazed and amused at all our efforts to keep the exchange rate high. I mean, we want to make the exchange rate, uh, we want to pay yeah. less rupees per dollar. The Korean, Japanese, Chinese singapore taiwan hong kong i mean all these people are trying to keep the exchange rate devalued yeah because to them the exchange rate is not a symbol of manhood it's simply a price yeah so you and, the, I, yeah, let me ask you yeah. this
1: you've been in the worked in the planning commission and i as being you know watching yeah. the economy particularly during the musharraf years which yeah. is when i came of age and since yeah. then i've always been fascinated by this idea that a strong currency equals a strong economy, which is a crazy proposition, but it is a mainstream view, even on the street, whether you talk to bankers, uh, people in the stock market, businesses at times argue this, make this point, policymakers make this point. And I've always been confused about why that's the case, because as you said, like it's viewed as a symbol of manhood or some sort of like economic success, which is not true. Mm -hmm. Um, But then some people also make that argument to the fact that Look, Pakistan is an importer of energy, much like Korea. It doesn't have access to uh, natural energy sources as much as it would like to have um, or as much as other countries. And therefore, a stronger currency keeps our exports more competitive. Um, so th- those are the two things I've heard. And I was wondering what your take on these two perspectives is. A, this wh- where does this bravado come from in terms of a strong currency being great? And B, is there any depth or, or truth to the fact that a strong currency is necessary to keep your exports competitive because Pakistan is an energy importing country?
0: No, 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 no. You see, uh, you raised a very, very good point, and you're absolutely right, that this is the thing that even when I was working in Pakistan and now, I mean, uh, working on Pakistan from the outside, I mean, since my retirement in 2000, uh, to up to about 2015 or 16, I have been to Pakistan four times a year on average. Uh, as a consultant but you see uh, there are two things one is that these guys have got the causation backwards a strong currency does not lead to a strong economy a strong economy leads to a strong currency i mean otherwise Mm. you are arguing like king canute that i will (laughs) say my currency is one rupee to the dollar and lo and behold it will become one rupee to the dollar Mm -hmm. No, like King Canute, I mean, ordered the waves to stop coming in and the waves paid no bloody attention to him. I mean, it's the same thing that Mm -hmm. you say my uh, currency is one rupee to the dollar. Fine. You'll find that you're exporting nothing. And then Mm -hmm. we'll see what you'll pay for your energy imports and what you'll pay uh, with what you'll pay for your defense imports and with what you'll pay for your food imports and with what you'll pay for your raw material imports. I mean, you'll be bankrupted in no time at all.
1: Which is what keeps happening because Pakistan is keeps returning keeps to the IMF. Yeah,
0: they've got the uh, the causation backwards. It's the Korean currency. I mean, becomes strong. The Japanese yen becomes strong because the Japanese economy is strong and people want to buy yen. That's mm-hmm. why I mean the that puts up the price of yen. Yeah. Not that uh, the the. Uh, you know prime minister abe one day gets up and says that uh, such and such will be the i decree that such and such will be the price of the yen yeah okay
1: so yeah and the yen me. is viewed as a safe haven because the economy is strong and so when right, a sir. global economic crisis hits people buy yen because they know the japanese government will stand by its commitments to pay the treasuries or whatever yeah, that you're exactly. investing in yen in and therefore the currency demand shoots up
0: Precisely. And also because if you want to buy stuff from Japan, I mean, you know, you'll have to buy yen. And uh, that's what helps Japanese uh, and Chinese and Korean and whatever else uh, exports. The causation is from a strong economy to a strong currency, not Mm -hmm. from a strong currency to a strong economy. Mm -hmm. that's okay the second thing uh, point uh, about this is that you're again absolutely right that the politicians want uh, an appreciated currency that the businessmen want an appreciated currency but that's because the politician is uh, knows nothing about economics and he's really concerned that he goes to his voters and says look I'm giving you lollipops at a very low price
1: Mm -hmm. he's
0: aiming at consumption he's not aiming at production and exports
1: which is the the vast majority of the Pakistani economy and its GDP function
0: exactly right exactly right so the uh, general Pakistani businessman is an importer not an exporter and therefore he Mm -hmm. wants an appreciated currency the general Pakistani is a consumer with no idea of what is going to pay for his consumption I mean, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, from the government side and from the uh, businessman side. If you talk to a Pakistani exporter, he wants a depreciated currency. But there are only too few Pakistani exporters. And the reason for that, again, is very simple. Because our incentive system contains an anti-export bias. And I'll sum it up very simply for you. Uh, A few years ago, I was working on Egypt for the World Bank and I was on the stage with uh, Robert Mandel, the Nobel Prize winner. And we were discussing Egypt's uh, export problems and so on, which we are very similar to Pakistan's. Mm-hmm. And Mandel said, uh, khalid can you explain to the audience, and this was an audience of university students and businessmen, Said, can you explain to the audience that attacks on exports Uh, sorry, a tax on imports is a tax on exports. Mm -hmm. And this is something that several people in the audience said, we don't understand. So Mandel said, okay, you know, you explain it to them in simple terms. I said, look, it's very simple. If I put a tax on imports, uh, import, uh, raise the import duty, for example, then it enables the domestic producer of that commodity or a competing commodity it enables him to charge a higher price domestically than the international price
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so if he's making that commodity he won't export it because he can get a higher price uh, selling it in egypt than he could mm-hmm. get it uh, by uh, trying to sell it abroad and uh, he avoids all the hassle of uh, uh, exporting and that's why that Every time you raise your import duties, you're actually giving your exporters a kick in the pants. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, and again, over and over again, I've tried to explain this point to policymakers in Pakistan. And they look bewildered. Yeah. They still seem to think that, uh, uh, you know, you, uh, a policymaker can announce something and that will take place. In fact, at one point, uh, I got so exasperated, I asked one of these guys, I mean, uh, uh, a finance minister who had actually been educated abroad in Pakistan. I said, have you ever read or seen or heard the Gilbert and Sullivan opera, uh, uh, the Mikado? And mm-hmm. he said, no. I said, well, I'll tell you in brief about it. The Mikado is the emperor of Japan. And he's got a habit of going around saying to everybody off with his head off with his (laughs) head i mean so the lord high executioner asks the prime minister that look do i really have to go and chop off these people's heads and uh the uh prime minister says look if the mikado gives an order it's it has to be carried out it's Mm -hmm. inconceivable it's inconceivable that it not happen. Mm -hmm. So if it's inconceivable that it not happen, it's as good as happened. So you don't Mm -hmm. actually have to do it. (laughs) So so I said, this is the Pakistani attitude that if you announce that uh, your currency will be worth such and such a thing, or you announce that uh, as, in fact, the Deputy Prime Minister of Burma uh, Myanmar once said to me he said Dr. Ekram, this we have announced this as the year of the uh, tourist." and I said what did that mean
1: hmm. and the
0: man looked quite bewildered he said but you yeah. know this is the year of the tourists the tourists will come in I said but have you done anything about your hotels have you done anything about your you know the flights in have you fixed your airport
1: yeah. have you
0: got, uh, at your tourist sites have you got guides have you got guidebooks and the answer was
1: no 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 no, no, and no. been it's just but, uh, been declared right
0: yeah i mean the mikado had said off with his head so it was yeah. as good as having his head off and i mean uh you didn't actually have to do it and yeah I well early, it, uh,
1: earlier earlier in 2020 pakistan's prime minister proclaimed that 2020 would be the year of economic growth and job creation um and i had yeah. the same question as you did well what have you done what's your framework to yeah. make sure that this proclamation is carried out and is successful Uh, rather than just saying we will reduce inflation and we will do x y or z like what does that even mean and there is no answer right
0: no nothing at all it's at the level of policy making in pakistan and i'm talking pakistan because that's something i know uh, well the uh, economic expertise in the government has dropped so far that uh, things that matter that I handled as an assistant chief in the planning commission. And mm-hmm. uh, by God, you can't get much lower than that. I mean, uh, the chiefs of sections in 2014 and 15 didn't understand. I mean, for example, they did not understand what a real effective exchange rate was. Mm-hmm. They were kept looking at the nominal rate and said, we've devalued. And I said, yes, but you're inflating faster than your competitors. Your mm-hmm. real effective exchange rate is appreciating then yeah. i had a talk with the finance minister and he said that you know we are have uh, we are going to have an export-led growth uh, strategy and it was my turn to be bewildered i said but uh, minister sahib you are the one who's keeping up the effective exchange rate have you ever heard of an export-led uh, growth strategy that relied on making exports more expensive relative mm-hmm. to its competitors You know, this is, uh, it just leaves you utterly baffled.
1: Yeah. And so a couple of points <laughs> yeah, that yeah. resonated with me here in terms of the, I, I completely agree on the yeah, import yeah. tax being an export tax. Like one of the things I keep telling people is like, just look at Pakistan's auto industry, right? Yeah. It has been protected for decades. Yeah. Um, it makes uh, poorer quality cars for more expensive costs or higher costs than even the rest of the region. Like you can look at India and its auto industry yeah. and you can get a car from there for much cheaper at a better quality with airbags and the latest technology sure. um, than what is being sold in pakistan and uh, you know people are like well you know we need to do this because the industry needs to be protected because jobs are there etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm like well that's just a really poor way of a resource scarce country to direct its resources to, an, uh, to a sector and an industry that is mm-hmm. globally uncompetitive and it's right. about time it became competitive globally or it shut down much like the uh, what you were describing with the Korean dictator right that yeah, yeah. either you meet your targets or if you yeah. don't I'm going to shut you down and sell yeah. you and your assets to another competitor because guess what we only have so many resources with which to play Um, economically and succeed and that point just does not resonate or for some reason has not resonated the second point that's interesting Mm -hmm, um, that you raised and it came up uh, during Dr. Atif Mia's conversation Mm -hmm. so you know I'm glad you raised it because I got criticism from a few people about this that they were like well you know to say that um, basic stuff uh, that you know people would do in the 90s at a very lower level in the planning commission or in the finance ministry, that huh. that basic stuff is not happening, such as scenario analysis or basic mm-hmm. modeling in terms of the impact of decision X, Y, or Z on the overall mm-hmm. economy. And people were like, well you know that's a very shallow point to make because it's very easy to say those things are not happening and i'm like but that's the truth that's how bad things are and what i'm hearing from you is the same thing where things that you saw happening in the planning commission decades ago actually now the capacity has actually become lower um, and people are less capable of doing even basic stuff that one would expect uh, them to understand, such as the real exchange uh, rate and its implications on the export side uh, of the country's economy.
0: Yeah, but it's, you know, the thing is hollowed out, uh, the economic expertise. And I imagine this is in other ministries too. I mean, I worked with the Planning Commission as a consultant. I worked with, you know, from here. Uh, I worked with the Ministry of Finance. I worked with the Ministry of Economic Affairs. And I was frankly horrified Because, you see, I worked with the planning ministries of Korea, of uh, uh, Egypt, of uh, uh, Laos, Cambodia, Burma, uh, the Philippines, Malaysia. And I Mm -hmm. see what they are doing to build up these uh, uh, economic ministries. And uh, I see in Pakistan, nobody gives a damn about them. You just fly Mm -hmm. by the seat of your pants. And we pay the price for it.
1: So what would be given that you've seen what happens in these other countries in terms of capacity building? What would you say are like a couple of important things that maybe need to about time in terms of capacity building happen in, let's say, the Complaining Commission of Pakistan or the Finance Ministry of Pakistan that can be easily replicated or if not easily or should be replicated from other East Asian economies and what they're doing?
0: Uh, that's a very good question that you've raised, uh, Ozair. Let me give you my take on it. I mean, based on my work with these East Asian countries and, and with Egypt and others. that You see, as I said, the first thing is that the government must be committed to development. Uh, uh, let me just expand for a minute on that. Yeah, please. The, the uh, 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 Korean government, I mean, the, the Deputy Prime Minister for Economic Affairs, uh, once told me, he said, uh, Mister. Ikram, when our ambassadors are posted out to, you know, countries around the world, they are essentially given only two terms of reference: that you're going to be judged by two things against two criteria. One, stop your country from recognizing North Korea or from getting too close to it. Hmm. So you know the country where you're accredited.
1: That's number the core two, national security terms. of That's record. the national
0: security. Number two, boost, Korean, boost South Korean exports to your country. All the rest is just neither here nor there. And twice a year, these ambassadors were summoned back to Seoul. And they were questioned, what have you done against these two criteria? How successfully have you uh, implemented them? They were not interested in, you know, how we have an independent foreign policy, we have a this and we have a that uh, or something. Just these two things. Because mm-hmm. this deputy prime minister told me, he said, you know, Mr. Trump, until we can stand on our own feet economically, it's a joke to say we are an independent country. And that's mm. why we will say, ji Hazur, I mean, to the United States, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, we can stand on our own feet because it's the main source of our uh, protection, of our technology, of our capital, of our, you know, whatever else it is. And once we can stand on our own feet, then we will see where our interests diverge from them and where our interests coincide with them. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, Pakistan has got numerous interests. We want to be a leader of the muslim world we want to be a, a, a big player in south asia we want to be you know god knows what else here here and god knows what else there uh, this, so the this, first
1: one is narrow narrow your focus to a very focused view on economic development and what needs to happen in the realm of economic development to empower the country like just forget about Leading the Muslim ummah or doing X or Y, but just hone down on how do we grow in the next decade.
0: I, you see, absolutely right, uh, absolutely right. Because until you are strong economically, you cannot be independent, and until you are strong independent, uh, unless until you are strong economically, you cannot afford a decent army or air force or navy. It's it's bluntly that, uh, it's, so. You have to begin with looking at the, your economy and moving on from there. The, again, this is a uh, discussion I had in the Planning Commission, I mean, about three or four years ago. I said, What are your aims? I mean, let's begin with a very fundamental thing. What uh, uh, are the uh, country's main aims? And I got a list of, I'm not joking, about Hmm. 11 or 13 or 14. Sorry, it was 17. 17 Hmm. pillars that uh, we need to do. I said, you must be mad. Yeah. They said, what would you say? I said, Pakistan, for each country, you have to tailor make what its uh, key goals have to be. And in Pakistan, I will say you have three key goals three things to aim at. Number one, a better life for its citizens. Number two, uh, resist uh, pressure from external sources. And number three, see that the province's development doesn't diverge so much that they feel better on their own than in the federation. Than in mm-hmm. Pakistan. i mean the, i said in view of pakistan's history these are the three targets i would aim at and mm. these are three targets that i can operationalize a better life for its citizens basically means a high rate of gdp growth and better distribution of the fruits of this growth mm-hmm. resistance to external pressures basically means keeping your current account balance current account deficit within very manageable limits no more than say let's say four percent of gdp 3% of GDP, 4% of GDP, something like that. And the last means that you pay a very close watch over the divergences of the economic pro- uh, performance of the provinces. You see, Ozer, I come from the generation that saw the breakup of Pakistan. I mm-hmm. was in what is East Pakistan three weeks before it became Bangladesh. And it was horrible mm-hmm. to see what was happening over there. And sitting in the planning commission, looking at, uh, you know, the divergent performance, writing report after report after report, saying that this is what we should be doing for East Pakistan and in East Pakistan, uh, and having them all ignored. Mm. Because basically the place was being run by West Pakistanis. Yeah, And I am a West Pakistani, but I could see what was happening. Yeah, so no, I,
1: my my family had businesses in East Pakistan at the time. And I, I've heard from my father, um, I wasn't born then, but I've heard yeah. from him that, you know, when they would do the business, you would have an educated, far more skilled East Pakistani making half or less yeah. than half of what an uneducated West Pakistani would make. But the West Pakistani would be the manager. Yeah. And the East Pakistani, even though they were capable of being a manager, were kept in lower paid jobs and positions just because of the simple mm-hmm. fact that they were East Pakistani.
0: Well, you see this, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, this was, but this is at the micro level.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: At the macro level also, there was a lot of dishonesty in it. I mean, let me give you an example. You're making the third five-year plan. All right. One of the targets is to narrow the uh, per capita income gap between West Pakistan and East Pakistan. And uh, so you look at the allocation of resources. What we say is, Public sector uh, expenditure will be divided 50-50. Each uh, West Pakistan and East Pakistan will each get half. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, private sector uh, expenditure, I mean, you know, will go where it goes. But the point uh, is that the private sector expenditure would, of course, go mainly to West Pakistan because that's where you'd built up all the infrastructure. That's where the capital was. That's where you went for your permits and your licenses and whatever else it was. The only resource that you really had control over was public sector expenditure. And so if you wanted to develop East Pakistan faster in order to ca- have it catch up with West Pakistan, you should have been giving much more of public sector expenditure to East Pakistan than to West. Yep. So again, defense expenditure is uh we will consider that divided equally How can you say that? you have 80 90 percent of your army and your armed forces in West Pakistan mm-hmm. oh but the defense of the country is indivisible that's why we mm-hmm. have considered it divided equally but the, all the expenditure on building bases on salaries or everything 90 percent of it takes place in West Pakistan the multiplier mm-hmm. effects are all in West Pakistan. So, how can you say that East Pakistan is benefiting equally? And you saw what happened in 1971. Yeah. I mean, that's a, okay. The third I, I, is, no, let me just say, this is, uh, it bothered all of us professionals in the planning commission, but the uh, guys on top kept us, sh- uh, you know, made us shut up. I mean, the Indus Basin works. Massive expenditures on the Kalabagh Dam, on the uh, sorry, not on the Kalabagh Dam, on uh, the Mangla Dam, on the Tarbela Dam, mm-hmm. on the link canals and all that. You see, we will not count these in public expenditure uh, or, mm-hmm. or in public investment because these are replacement works; they are not additional mm-hmm. works. But whatever they are, the expenditure is taking place in West Pakistan and the uh, the uh, uh, multiplier effects of it are in West Pakistan. We build a new capital in Islamabad and all the multiplier effects of that are in West Pakistan. But you see, the capital is the capital for the whole country. So we keep this uh, outside the West Pakistan allocation.
1: But sheer dishonesty. Yeah. And I fear, like, I mean, I yeah. fear that similar stuff is happening right now with China Pakistan economic corridor in terms of the eastern route versus the western route and the investments being made more focus on the Western route, some of which makes sense because that's where the economic activity is. But to your point about the third point about equal development across provinces, uh, Pakistan has seen the impact of not following that key goal um, in 1971. And I fear that those same mistakes are being repeated again. I wanted to dig deep into the second point you raised, yeah. which is resist external pressure. And I completely agree with yeah. you that yeah. resisting external pressure is a direct function of your economic stability and your economic position. Um compared to the rest of the world or even within the region Um, whether it is india bangladesh afghanistan your economic position as it stacks up against these countries will lead to an, an increased ability to resist external pressure or a decreased ability to resist external pressure because at the end of the day if you need bailouts you need coalition support funds you need foreign bond investments to keep your economy afloat then you will have to make compromises on certain National security choices that you otherwise could have resisted. Um, the flip side of that, that one hears consistently uh, in Pakistan, and I want your take on it, is that, well, Pakistan has a strong military, it has nuclear weapons, and therefore, by diverting scarce resources into the military and continuing to make those investments, Pakistan is able to resist external pressure. Do you think that's a fair? Uh, counterpoint uh, to say that you know whatever out of the 100 rupees pakistan has 40 or something 30 goes to the military and that is the effective means of resisting external pressure
0: well i am let me start by saying i'm not a military expert so please excuse my ignorance of these matters but my take on this is that the militarily the only pressure that we can resist uh, is against india I mean, uh, what else can Pakistan do uh, Mm -hmm. about it? I mean, we are not going to nuke the Houthis, you know, for the Saudis' benefit. We are not Hmm. going to uh, nuke somebody else in the Philippines because, I mean, the Muslim province over there feels is being badly treated or whatever. So the only thing with the militarily that we can aim at is that if we are afraid of uh, india well all these things offer us a buffer against india but offer us a buffer i think up to a point we mm-hmm. uh, i to, uh, speak to a number of these uh, Uh, Pakistani and American strategists over here who know more about these issues than I do, clearly. I mean, uh, they say that a nuclear war between India and Pakistan is unthinkable. Mm -hmm. Because, A, Pakistan is a long, narrow country, and it will be wiped out. And India will be put in the Stone Age. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, the uh, leaders of both countries are aware of this. Because, I mean, take an example. The after this uh, attack on Mumbai, nobody fought a war about it. Mm -hmm. After the uh, attack on the Indian parliament, I mean, the armies came to the border, faced each other, but realized what the costs of a war would be and backed Mm -hmm. off. So, while we are spending all this money, and maybe we need to spend all this money, as I said, I'm no authority on this. But uh, it's really building up things that we are never going to use Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so but against the rest of the world I don't see how we can consider ourselves to be any kind of power if every if from 19 since 1991 to 2017 2016 we've been 13 times to the IMF Mm -hmm. for bailouts during that time India has been once and Bangladesh has been three times You tell me, what resistance do we have against external pressure
1: if we have to go cap in hand every other year to the uh, IMF? Yeah, and I think the the important point also there is that at at some point in time, that, that, that weak economic situation, whether it's in the form of low foreign reserves or export capacity or technological ability to produce certain things at home means that in a prolonged confrontation with India or whoever else for that matter, but primarily India in the neighborhood, um, at some point in time within a week or two, Pakistan would have to go hat in hand for money and external resources to continue financing its war machine, right? At, at some point, the money and the armaments will run out. And again, that is that means that your ability to resist external pressure is fairly limited Um, when it comes to a real confrontation that leads to something that is sustained over a longer period of time. Um, And therefore, uh, at least my view is that you need to make investments in economic development and, and ability for the people to live a better life because it naturally, just like the Koreans realized, yeah. builds up national security capacity uh, over the long run, um, which is, uh, if you don't do that, it's it's not going to be there, that capacity to resist external pressure.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, The 1965 war with India lasted 17 days. Before, even though 17 days were up, we had sent purchasing missions or begging missions to Iran and to Saudi Arabia. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to ask for arms and to ask for money. Basically, we couldn't stand, yeah. say, you know, even a three-week war, a three-week fairly limited war. I mean, that's, uh, uh, what is this business about uh, being a world power or a great nuclear power and so on?
1: Yeah. So another thing that uh, when I look at East Asia, and you're the expert here, but my shallow understanding of this was that the East Asian miracle, Korea and otherwise, um, was also focused on pragmatism um, in the sense that when you look at China, Korea, even Vietnam, these countries don't really get along with each other. right? They have a lot of burden of history on their sides in terms of what happened, even Japan, if you take a look at what happened in World War II. but they were pragmatic in the sense that they all realized that to grow they will eventually need to start trading with each other and take part in localized regional supply chains and yes they have issues with each other that keep flaring up but the economic uh success uh is directly linked to this regional trade and so that grew by leaps and bounds in the last few decades um Do you think that there is a need even within South Asia, particularly for Pakistan, to have a similarly uh, pragmatic trade orientation when it comes to looking at regional trade? Or can Pakistan um, succeed economically and be uh, economically successful um, in the long run without integrating with the rest of the region? No, I think Pakistan will have to integrate with the rest of the region because I mean that uh, otherwise we'll be
0: spending so much more on uh, defense and so much more on uh, you know just avoiding friction, uh, political and uh, military f- uh, friction. Uh, your point about pragmatism is something you know that is exceedingly important. That uh, the one that you mentioned, uh, pragmatism, uh, the pragmatic attitude of uh, East Asian countries. I mean. Uh, Let's take Korea, because we are talking about Korea. You had the uh, the war between North and South Korea. And from 1955 to today, that's the only war that these two countries have fought. South Korea has resisted every kind of provocation, including an attack by North Korean commandos on the Blue House, which is the president's house in Seoul on mm-hmm. uh, uh, the sinking of a korean vessel on uh, you know tunneling under the demilitarized zone and coming up and if you go into that tunnel you see the tunnels now blocked with a big huge rock mm-hmm. and there's a south korean soldier with a machine gun pointed at this rock sitting over there i mean as if the north koreans are coming <laughs> through there again i mean the, uh, if you go along the coast of south korea uh, every morning a patrol goes along. I mean, the the sand over it is plowed, and every morning patrols go along to see if uh, any uh, North Korean people have landed on the, by submarine on it and uh, you know disturbed the uh, plowed sand
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and so on. But the point is that they have not responded to any of the provocations because they understand what the costs of war uh, will be. Uh, so. In spite of the militarization, in spite of the hostility, in spite of the tension, there's been no hot war on the Korean Peninsula since 1955. Mm -hmm. In Pakistan, we've had wars with India in 1948, in 1965, in 1971. There's been the attack on Mumbai. There's been the attack on the Indian parliament. There's been the Kargil war. war. I mean, just compare the the two things. Mm -hmm. this is what i mean by saying that pakistan's focus has not been on economic development it's been on all kinds of things and i'm not judging whether these should be right or these should be wrong i mean uh, sure man does not live by bread alone and there may Mm -hmm. be maybe man lives by bullets but uh, the my point is that so long as economic development is not front and center of the government's aims pakistan will not get economic development because it's aiming at too many targets. It's open to Mm. many fronts. I mean, uh, then let me just come up to the uh, second issue, which, uh, can Pakistan replicate the Korean experience? Because wherever I go in Pakistan, I mean, you know, they've heard vaguely that Korea has done wonders. Uh, And, you know, simple answer, Pakistan should do the same. Mm -hmm. But uh, let me first I mean, I'm not going to say whether Pakistan can or cannot or should or should not replicate the Korean experience. I just want to point out what Korea had to do to achieve that experience, I mean, to get that experience. And your listeners can then decide whether Pakistan is capable of doing it or whether Mm -hmm. Pakistan should even try to do it. Uh, The first uh, issue is that the international environment today is quite different from the international environment in which Korea started its uh, uh, drive, the uh, as I said, that the Korean strategy was essentially to import raw materials and semi-finished uh, commodities, add value through a technologically trained labor force, and to export the finished products at a uh, uh, at a competitive exchange rate. So, uh, Co- the Koreans understood something that pakistan has not understood and that is that a vibrant export policy can be based on imported raw materials you can import Mm -hmm. to export these items do not have to be indigenous the raw materials do not have to be indigenous to the exporting country Mm -hmm. in fact i mean during the period of its most rapid growth uh, the Korean export uh, the import content of Korean exports was generally higher than 40 percent Wow! yeah I mean you know, it shows you that the country has no natural resources it's the my fascination with the Korean experience is that its growth is policy driven Not uh, Mm -hmm. mineral, uh, you know, not raw material driven. Compared with that, Pakistan has raw cotton and, you know, uh, used to have raw jute also. It has a a rich agriculture, I mean, uh, and so on. Uh, All kinds of assets that the Koreans never had.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Now, the second point is uh, still on the international environment. Is that when the uh, East Asian Tigers, the East Asian countries began their export drive, The United States, in particular, was quite relaxed about running deficits with them. Mm -hmm. And there were a variety of reasons. It wanted to build up Japan as a bulwark against the expansion of communism toward the east. It wanted to build up South Korea as a democratic counterpart against North Korea. The development of Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan figured prominently in its strategy against China, Mm -hmm. and so on. And moreover, you know, the what these countries exported was peanuts compared to, I mean, the United States' external position. So these countries, Korea and the other East Asian countries, were implicitly permitted to follow uh, what is called a mercantilist policy, that they can ex- encourage their exports mm-hmm. through a very depreciated exchange rate. They could provide fiscal and other subsidies to their exporters, and they could provide rigid controls on their imports. Uh, but that situation has changed. The West, United States and the Western countries are running deficits on their external balances, uh, especially against China.
1: Mm-hmm. So there
0: is much more emphasis on, quote, leveling the playing field, unquote. Yeah. And the uh, World Trade Organization rules make it very difficult for Pakistan to follow a mercantilist policy. Mm-hmm. So the first difficulty in Pakistan doing what Korea did is that the world has changed. The second major task uh, is that, the, as you and I were discussing earlier, that the Koreans uh, subordinated uh, a lot of their other policies to their economic policies. For example, uh, the Koreans were prepared to act as mercenaries Uh, for the United States-East Asian wars. I mean, for example, Mm -hmm. during the war in Vietnam, Korea supplied a total of something like 350,000 troops to the battle. At at the height of the war, at one point, there were some 50,000 Korean troops, elite troops, fighting side by side with 550,000 American and allied troops. In fact, after the United States, the largest contingent of troops uh, came from Korea. Can you see Pakistan providing uh, its army for to fight against, say, Iran in America's interests?
1: Well, right, both bases, but probably <laughs> not the army. It's yeah, going to be yeah. covert, covert support, not overt by any means. Yeah, and I, uh,
0: and if it's a you know a country like Iran or something, I mean, I doubt even the uh, it'd be too willing even for the covert support that's uh but anyway let uh, this nothing uh, and the point i'm making is that there is uh, no free lunch the piper has to be paid and if you mm-hmm. not pay if you can't pay him in an economic coin you'll have to pay him in a political or a strategic coin and the point is is pakistan prepared to pay that mm-hmm. the third uh difference is that the Korean policy and uh, some of the other East Asian countries also, but uh, Korea was a prime example of it, the strategy was of picking winners. That is, they selected specific industries to back, especially during what they called the heavy and chemical industry period, which Mm -hmm. was from about 1972 to 1979. And uh, this raised a number of issues. One, that they may get it wrong there may be a mismatch between the products demanded by the market and the industries backed by the government. Mm -hmm. And this is, in fact, what happened in Korea to some extent, that uh, it led to price increases for the commodities that were not being produced.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Second, and this is terribly important, which is that since the government's budgetary and other resources are limited, Uh, backing sunrise industries or industries that you consider to be sunrise industries, the industries of the future, uh, requires you to let sunset industries die because you can't Mm -hmm. finance all of them. You don't have the resources. The Koreans were quite brutal in this matter. But since the Pakistani industrial structure has a large element of crony ownership, then Mm -hmm. I can see sunrise or so-called
1: winners being
0: identified and backed I find it much more difficult to see support being withdrawn from uh, losers.
1: Which would limit the ability of the sunrise sector to rise because you need a reallocation of resources at some point in time to accelerate their growth, um, which would not happen otherwise. Absolutely.
0: Then another point is that running this sort of industrial policy requires a well-trained and efficient civil service. The Korean civil servants is recruited on merit. And while corruption no doubt exists, uh, Uzair, it's much more limited than in Pakistan. It is regularly cracked down upon and the penalties are severe. I personally know deputy prime ministers and other cabinet ministers, principally in construction and in uh, finance, and now even a sitting president who incidentally yeah. was the, the daughter of Park Chung-hee, who started the Korean Miracle, who've all been imprisoned for corruption. Yeah. How many Pakistani uh, politicians can you think of who served jail terms for corruption?
1: Yeah, and I think the important, the other important part here is that a lot of them are found guilty of and dismissed from their offices while they are in power, right? It's not absolute, that absolute. a new government comes in and says, now there's an accountability process for everyone in the last five years and we're going to go after you. No, the accountability process is so strong that... It leads by example. So, a minister of tourism who may have skimmed off some money for a tourist resort in the Korean, let's say, a hypothetical example, yeah. um, will be found guilty and charged and removed from office and jailed. All and while jailed. his party is in power. That's right.
0: That's uh, that's right. I mean, so this is another thing that will get Pakistan fair. Uh, fourth point is that the the qualifications of the ministers. I worked on Korea for the World Bank for 10 years. And during that time, I mean, on average, I visited Korea four or five times a year. That's 40 or 50 visits uh, to Korea. I never worked with a deputy prime minister in charge of the economy or a minister of finance or a minister of economy who did not have a PhD in economics, generally from a well-known American university. mm mm-hmm. The economic ministries were all, each one of them was backed by research departments and they have a fantastically able, well-qualified and efficient Korean Development Institute. I mean, it acts like a university and Mm -hmm. that is linked to the Ministry of Planning. So that provides economic uh, analysis and advice across the board. Uh, And even things like the social impact of a certain policy. Uh, Then fifth, I I think I'm up to my fifth point. But anyway, Mm -hmm. that there's a marked difference between the technical training and qualities of the Pakistani and East Asian labor forces. Uh, Mm -hmm. Since creating a university place in the scientific or technological subjects requires about four or five times the amount of resources required for one in the art subjects, Pakistan has allocated so few resources to these, uh, what are called the STEM subjects, science, technology, Mm -hmm. engineering and mathematics, that very few places have been uh, created in them in Pakistan relative to the demand. And I don't want to talk about the quality because the less said about it, the better.
1: Even just in terms of resources, last year, the budget for the Higher Education Commission of Pakistan was cut as part of the austerity drive, um, which was astounding because a country like Pakistan with the weak primary and secondary education system... Um, has an advantage nonetheless because there are so many people coming out of the system. So even, uh, you know, having a lower base of literate folks uh, allows you to have STEM graduates, but for that you need funding. And the HEC funding was cut for I don't know what reason, but that's the prioritization, I guess.
0: Actually, there's a very nice phrase in the Education Commission report of 1959. It says, I mean, I'm quoting it more or less uh, verbatim, it says that to argue that we cannot afford education is in fact to argue that we will always remain poor.
1: Hmm.
0: And, you know, what you have said just underlines uh, that. Then the point I want to make is that there's a marked difference uh, between the attitude towards work uh, of the Korean worker and of the Pakistani worker. You just have to compare the punctuality uh, and the dedication of the Korean worker to the chatting and the tea drinking that you see in government offices mm-hmm. in Pakistan and everyone you know coming later and leaving offices even earlier during Ramadan. And yeah, I working. would say
1: even beyond government, even in the oh, private yeah, 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 sector. When, the when, the private, uh,
0: sector. Uh, when I was working on Korea, uh, first thing that struck me was that uh, they said, uh, we enjoy uh, five days of uh, you know annual leave. Five days, I said. They said, yes, mm-hmm. you see, we can combine it with two weekends in front and two weekends at the year and get uh, at the back and get nine days and that enables us to go to our villages and our homes and uh, whatever. And so we can then, uh, And I began thinking of Pakistan, where we used mm-hmm. to get a month's holiday in the government. And every other month, there was something called rest and recreation leave, where you were actually paid (laughs) to go on holiday. I'm not joking. And of course, many of us didn't go on holiday, but we got the pay. You know, it was worth quite a lot. Uh, Then you got five days for each Eid. Uh, you got, I don't know how many days for Independence Day and then Republic Day and, uh, you know, the Prophet's birthday and, yeah. uh, you know, j- j- just keep addi- adding them. And then there was a lovely thing called 20 days of of casual leave.
1: Hmm. I mean, you
0: had to give, give no reason for that lead, uh, for yeah. the leave. Leave that I'm taking. Uh, uh, I was flabbergasted that the Koreans made do with five days of uh, leave. Plus, I mean, they probably got, uh, you know, one day for Christmas and one day for Independence Day or something. I mean, it was no more than 10 days of leave in the year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, and this attitude towards work permeates, you know, the whole uh, society. Uh, I once asked the presidents of Samsung Electronics of Hyundai Shipbuilding and of debut heavy industries, all separately. So Mm -hmm. there was no feedback from one to the other. That what term of praise would please you most? And they all answered in very similar terms. It was to be known as a, quote, diligent, unquote, worker. Mm. Note, diligent, Mm. not brilliant, outstanding, exceptional, innovative, or some uh, similar adjective. The Koreans believe that a great deal can be accomplished simply by hard work. Yeah, this is not something that you see uh, very. And well that's the ti- that's where
1: the perspiration is right at a very micro <laughs> level. They they perspire and work really hard. And I think I think one of the things that I was thinking about as you were mentioning this yeah. this is a very important point because I was talking to someone else who yeah. Yeah. lives here in the United States. Um, he's a Pakistani uh, immigrant to the U. S. Has a company in Pakistan, and he was complaining about work ethics and morals of his workers in yeah. karachi which is where he hires yeah. uh, very highly qualified graduates because this is an ai company um, not yeah. one of the big ones uh, but still yeah. hires really top talent but he was saying pretty much the same thing and what when you were saying uh, talking about hard work i was thinking about the fact that in the korean example or even east asia, east asia in general or in other economies that have grown and succeeded Um, the beneficiaries of the status quo at some point or another Um, made sacrifices and lost something for the greater good of the nation, right? So in the Korean case, you may be the deputy prime minister or the Mm -hmm. president of Samsung. Mm -hmm. Guess what? You did not have to be a diligent worker to do certain things because you were in a position of privilege, but you were inculcated with the ethics and the morals and the desire to make those sacrifices, to be a diligent worker, because there was a larger vision Um, which is the economic development of your people as a whole that you were working towards. Um, And as a result, you were able to, whether you're a bureaucrat or a civil servant, a minister, a normal employee or a president of Samsung, you were working towards that goal. And I think in, in the Pakistani sense, this national vision of development and what that entails and the sacrifices it will require from everybody At least from my perspective, is what's been missing for a number of years, at least throughout my adult life, Mm -hmm. um, that I've seen.
0: You see, Ozer, you're uh, you're absolutely right that it's this uh, idealism or national commitment may be missing. But you know, the Koreans and the other East Asians are also very uh, careful about the what one may call the optics of the situation. I mean, I got to know people in uh, you know. Hyundai and Debu and Samsung and, you know, all their big conglomerates uh, knew a large number of these people. And once I was talking to the president of, uh, of in this case, Hyundai Heavy Industry, and I said, look, you're, you live in an apartment, not in a big house, and your apartment is bigger than mm. the normal Hyundai apartment, but, you know, not spectacularly so, and your car has a telephone in it, but, I mean, it's no bigger than, uh, you know, a million other cars over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this a conscious decision? He said yes. Hmm. He said, uh, we, in fact, he said that in the uh, factory, in the company, we generally wear the same kind of gray boiler suit that the others yeah. wear, and we yeah. have our lunches with the in the same canteen as the others. And mm-hmm. if we want to, you know, splurge a bit, he said, I don't do it in Seoul. I do it in Tokyo. I do it in Washington or, to- or New mm-hmm. York. But uh, over here, as far as possible, uh, some kind of equality has to, the appearance of equality has to be maintained. Yeah. This is a thing. But, uh, you know, I don't want to now, uh, let me just sort of add a footnote uh, on a more positive note, if you like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to suggest that the Koreans are genetically disposed to work and Pakistanis are not. Of course not, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because in uh, a recent book I wrote, uh, actually dealt with the political economy of reform in Egypt, because Egypt has similar problems as uh, Pakistan's. I quoted several instances of Japanese and other writers describing the Koreans as, open quote, lazy, close quote, and of mm-hmm. the uh, of the country producing only open quote, shit, flies and prostitutes close quote, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: <laughs> but uh, Jap, 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 Japan's racism towards Korea historically is the stuff of legends. It's it's
0: the stuff of legend. But what I'm saying is that I put this question very bluntly to a number of the you know heads of uh, Korean uh, uh, companies. I mean, of the chaebol, of their conglomerates, that. Uh, why? how has Korea managed to turn this uh, image around? I mean, because the image mm. now is of a very hard-working, punctual, and dedicated uh, uh, country. And they said that actually, what happened was that uh, it began with Park Chung-hee. And what happened was that he made it clear that if you worked, you got the fruits of your work. Mm. If you didn't, you got the rough end of the stick. Mm-hmm. I mean, that uh, in other countries, they said, this doesn't come across. I mean, they, yeah. they said, that, look at what the polls were saying, that they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, <laughs> So, so uh, the rewards were aligned with incentives in Korea yeah. and delivered. And the punishments were aligned with failures and delivered. Now, we've had Mm -hmm. dictatorships in Pakistan for half the country's history. Why have those dictators not done what the Korean dictators
1: have done? yeah i mean to that point one of the things even beyond dictatorship i always ask people yeah. is like as you said pakistan's yeah. gone through 13 imf programs right and in any economic yeah. crisis um businesses go bankrupt and people lose yeah. their fortunes and they lose their money right and i always ask people like tell me in the last 13 times or even the last two yeah. times Pakistan's mm-hmm. went to the imf what billionaire or multimillionaire in pakistan went bankrupt and lost everything they had and the answer zero. is zero, zero right and that zero. just shows that the Fruits of the benefit are, own, are always almost always going to a very select elite, um, which, by the way, also does not lose anything yeah. uh, when the crisis hits. And therefore, there is no innovation. There is no uh, perspiration in terms of actually trying to get up to the top. And like you look at even something like the agricultural sector in Pakistan, mm, yeah. which is the highest employer. Yeah. Um, you have feudal lords that really don't even know how to farm. If you put them on a plot of land and say, put some seeds in this land and get some yeah. fruit out of this land. They won't know how to. But the fruits of that land, uh, which is the, are the workers who work on it, the peasants and the villagers, um, they get something like pennies on the dollar, if even. Yeah, uh, if they're not working as bonded labor yeah. um, and the benefits go to this landlord who has a big house and a mansion in Karachi or Lahore and a big mansion on the historical lands mm-hmm. that they own. And therefore, agricultural productivity is close to flat in the country because there is no incentive for anybody to work harder than they are because the landlord is happy and the poor person will not work hard because they don't get to see anything uh, in on the upside if right. they were to work hard. Right, right.
0: right. Right, uh, right. Actually, the situation is becoming even worse because now what the if the elite are doing is they are safeguarding their fortunes by depositing them in uh, yes. real estate <laughs> in Dubai, uh,
1: you, you know, wherever else, hiding longer. it in shell companies. But you were going yeah. towards a positive point in terms of what is possible. So I, yeah. sorry, we got distracted on. Yeah this this critique of the agricultural worker and the situation.
0: Oh, no, that... no, 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 no. My, my positive point was that, I mean, until about 1960, the Koreans were accused of being lazy and producing only shit and flies and prostitutes and so on. And so if given the right leadership, you can turn a country around in a remarkably short time, but the country has to be prepared to work and it has to be
1: prepared to have a single purpose, a single target
0: and aim for that. Yeah.
1: No, I think that's, 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 that's a very important point. And I think that vision for the future, right, which is where we started this conversation with the Korean example, was that you will have economic development, which the model will be export-led growth. And I guess on the Pakistani side, Pakistan has to develop or come up with a vision for the future that tries to, I think, the three points you raised, better life for its people, ability to resist external pressure and then make sure that there is equal development across provinces is is, is the way to go. Um, and I hope that that happens sooner rather than later, because as, as someone who's 31 years old, I look at Pakistan's demographics and say there is a youth bulge. Mm-hmm. And the youth bulge is, if, if the right policies are there, is a fantastic opportunity to grow in the 21st century. And if the right policies are missing, then it's a ticking time bomb. Um, it's a, and, yeah, yeah, it's and so nightmare. that's what people need to realize yeah dr khalid any any final words before we uh end this conversation it's been fascinating and i have learned a lot in terms of the korean model and what they did right and what pakistan can learn from it so uh i know we're a bit over time but i'll let you have the last word on this and then we'll call it well, call it and end <clears> to this conversation okay uh my
0: last word is uh Uh, You know, why does Pakistan continue to have these crises? And again, I mean, you know, I don't need to say anything very much on this because Pakistan has any number of excellent economists in Pakistan who are closer to the situation and know more about it than I do. But I mean, you know, we continue to have a balance of payments crisis and a budgetary crisis. We, uh, and you know the answer, I mean, that uh, nobody pays taxes if he can help it. I mean, you've got a million and a half taxpayers, income tax taxpayers, in a country of a working population of 110 million and so on. But the point about all this that worries me uh, is what makes you think this will change? Because to mm. put it quite bluntly, that the elements in society that should be paying the taxes... Are precisely the ones that have the authority to legislate or to enforce the payments, and I've never heard yes. of turkeys wo- voting for an early Christmas.
1: <laughs> yes, that's true.
0: So I leave it to my, you know, Pakistani friends and colleagues and compatriots. I mean, to figure out that conundrum. Because ultimately, it comes down to really a political economy issue rather than a purely economic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they have to understand that without a strong economy, talking of an independent Pakistan is a joke. You're either mm. going to be in uh, hock to the United States and uh, one or two other countries, or you're going to be in hock to China, or you're going to be in hock to Saudi Arabia and some other countries. You are not independent. Get that out of your yeah. head. Yeah,
1: And I think it needs to go beyond slogans and beyond proclamations, right? Like just saying that this will be the last IMF program does not mean much um, because just because you said it because ultimately two years in at least for this government all the promises of change you look at two reforms that have been pushed and there is nothing to show for it right now which is very disappointing because um, this was supposed to be the party of change and party of reform and in so many ways right and I agree with you that if that change is not happening and turkeys are not going to vote for an early christmas um, then it really is uh, a question that is a very difficult question to think about even because the change if it's not going to come uh, in a way that uh, is going to benefit society equally or more equally than it has in the past and um, the outlook is quite uh, quite depressing for a country like pakistan
0: may i make one final point sure <laughs> again uh, based on the korean experience uh, i did uh, economic reports for each of the provinces and in fact two for balochistan but anyway uh, uh, pointed that the chief minister of the Punjab asked me what should be the next steps so i said the next step should be that you don't ask for any more reports Your problem is not the reports. Your problem is the implementation or the lack of it. I said, you don't need an economist sitting over here, you know, telling you once more the elasticity of tax collection with respect to GDP is X, Y, and Z. What you need is a guy with a clipboard who has written on it that department X was supposed to do Y by time Z. Mm -hmm. And he has to go around to the department ticking off. Has it been done or has it not been done? If it's not been done, you need to call the department head over here and give him a shouting. And if it mm. has been done, you need to call him in here and pat him on the back. I mean, mm. you need implementation of things. The Pakistan's plans, believe me, believe me, I've read all of them, they are much, much better than Korean plans. The mm. difference is that the Korean plans are implemented, the Pakistani plans are not.
1: Mm.
0: And the Koreans are prepared to be very... Uh, Pragmatic about it. Uh, Let me give one final example of it. Uh, That when they were making one of their plans, it was the sixth plan or so. Uh, By that time, the private sector had become, you know, very large. And, of course, very complex. I mean, they're no longer exporting human hair, wigs and soft toys. They're exporting computers and chips and chips. And, uh, uh, I mean, the, uh, 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 the Hyundai shipbuilding... Uh, facility in uh, Ulsan is the biggest single shipbuilding works in the whole world.
1: Yeah, and sure. Korean goods today are just some of the most technologically oh, sophisticated okay. goods you can buy. Yeah.
0: So, um, what uh, I uh, asked this guy, uh, this uh, I told this uh, pri- 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 chief minister that the Korean uh, saying is that a second best plan that's implemented. Is better than a first best that sits on the shelf,
1: mm. and
0: Pakistan has any number of plans that should sit on the shelf, and very few that are implemented. Mm. So, uh, Pakistan's problem is really one of implementation rather than one of designing, uh, rather than one of design. Anyway, that's.
1: Uh, no, that's that's um, a that's a very valid point and an apt point to conclude this discussion. Yeah. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for taking out the time. Um, I I think I I definitely learned a lot. And I think our listeners will have learned a lot because Korea is viewed as this fascinating growth story and success story, but most Pakistanis don't really know much about how that was achieved. And I think the fact that they implemented on their plans um, is a large, uh, is a large function of their success. So um, I I think there's no one better than you to have and talk about this conversation. So again, thank you for your time. And uh, and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much for having me on your program, Ozair. I mean, I've learned much from your earlier programs, and I'm delighted to be part of them.
1: Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Pakistanomy. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe to it using your favorite podcast app, and do share it with your friends and family, as well as on your social media. Hope you tune in next time.